I'm Elizabeth Slattery, and welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. The court is in its summer recess, but I have a special interview to share with you that couldn't wait until next season. Today, I'm joined by the authors of a fantastic new book called Justice on Trial, The Kavanaugh Confirmation, and the Future of the Supreme Court. The authors are the lovely and talented Carrie Severino and Molly Hemingway. Carrie is chief counsel of the Judicial Crisis Network, and Molly is a senior editor at The Federalist. Ladies, welcome to SCOTUS 101. It is great to be here with you. And I think, Carrie, you've been on, what, three times now? A few times, yeah. A few times. You're a, a regular here. So the book is not your typical summer beach read, but I have to admit I couldn't put it down. And even though I was here in Washington, I lived through the confirmation of of Justice Brett Kavanaugh. I found the retelling of the story uh, riveting. So first up, why did you decide to write this book and why now? Both of us knew that this was really one of the most important things to happen to the country this past year. As you said, we we felt like we lived through it, and it wasn't just us. It was the whole nation watching this happen before us. And it wasn't really just Brett Kavanaugh who was on trial. In many ways, it was justice itself on trial as we debated concepts of the rule of law and the presumption of innocence and how due process should work. And uh, so we decided we wanted to tell the full story of what happened because there were we knew a lot of people who were involved in it. Molly is in her capacity as a journalist, me as in working for the confirmation. We knew there were a lot of stories that had not gotten out there yet. So we went through, talked to over 100 different people from the president, the vice president, people in the White House counsel's office, the s- several members of the Supreme Court. We had dozens of senators and their staff, and then people who knew the Kavanaugh's or who knew Christine Blasey Ford back in high school, of course, with all the relevant times. So we wanted to get a full picture of what happened last year, and really in the hopes that when people understand what happened, we can learn how to prevent this kind of a debacle surrounding a confirmation from repeating itself. So as you mentioned, you interviewed numerous people in and out of government who were involved in the confirmation process. So would you talk about some of the people you interviewed and which ones were the real highlights? This was one of the most fun things about reporting the book was doing these interviews. We interviewed more than 100 people. Sometimes we were interviewing them three or four more times uh, to get to get deep into the actual story. We interviewed uh, many people at the White House, including the president and several top-level people uh, with him, the Justice Department, members of the Supreme Court, senators, their staff, people who knew the Kavanaugh's well, people who knew the Blasey's very well, and just being able to have people share stories about what it was like to go through the confirmation process and have that firsthand knowledge. Part of what we did in the book is telling about the importance of Supreme Court confirmation battles and the context in which the Kavanaugh battle was waged, uh, how it related to previous um, pr- previous fights that had been had. But partly it was just a really interesting story and being able to get those behind the scenes details of you know hearing what the conversations were in the White House or in various Senate offices uh, was really exciting. There was this part where we learned that Melania Trump tells President Donald Trump midway through that reopened hearing that she doesn't believe Christine Blasey Mm -hmm. Ford. And it was just kind of funny that 
the same conversations are happening at the White House that are happening in yeah. living rooms across the country where people were saying, oh, you know, I was waiting to hear. And here now we have the testimony and, and uh, you know, hoping, maybe hoping or not hoping for more corroboration of the details rather than just the allegation, which didn't have many specifics. And not only did those details not come, but we show how Rachel Mitchell, by asking questions about the very few details that were there or things that had been told to the American public, such as that Christine Blasey Ford was terrified of flying, you know, and then during that confirmation hearing, it comes out that for someone who's terrified of flying, she does a lot of island hopping, mm-hmm. you know, on planes to do surf travel. This is very much at odds with the media presentation. So just when that happens in real time, getting to learn how it affected Senate offices or the White House or other people was just very exciting. Mm-hmm. So at the beginning of the book, you detail how Justice Anthony Kennedy kept his decision to retire a secret, uh, probably the best kept secret in Washington at the time. Could you give listeners a preview of how this all went down, starting with his clandestine lunch at the Sculpture Garden with one of his former law clerks? Yeah, this was such a fun story. We ultimately decided to begin the book with it because it has a lot of this neat cloak and dagger, really um, interesting stuff. And as you as you noted. D.C. is a pretty leaky town, and uh, it, it's, it was really impressive to get this all accomplished without it getting out into the media mm-hmm. before the justice and the president were ready. He obviously had thought about retiring for a while, and everyone was on on retirement watch for over a year, really. But when he decided he thought he wanted to go there, he actually arranged a meeting with a former clerk of his at the White House Sculpture Garden at one of the restaurants there, I guess in the theory that midday, there's not a lot of people there. They had to scout it out with his uh, his U.S. Marshals. And in fact, he went to the, the museum earlier with his clerks and then just kind of ditched them and went on. So there was a, there was this wonderful cover story of, oh, I'm just going out to, you know, <laughs> to look at some artwork with my clerks. And then he sits down at this meeting and conveys that he's thinking of retiring and he wants to make sure that he can tell the president privately before it gets out. But he also wanted to tell his, he wanted to first, he was going to tell his colleagues mm-hmm. and then he was going to tell the president and wanted to do all that without it becoming a big a public thing first. So they managed to do this. He comes off the bench that Wednesday, the final Wednesday of the term. And everyone, for whatever reason, seemed to expect him to announce it from the bench. So a lot of people were saying, okay, tend to pack up and go home. The Kennedy watch is over. But meanwhile, he's actually speaking to his the fellow Supreme Court justices and telling them, which we were excited to learn, was actually a surprise to his colleagues. I mean, he had been going along, he'd been hiring clerks, and actually you know, talking with them about future cases as if he would be sitting on them. So it, it was it was amazing to me that it was a secret kept, even internally in the court. And then the White House actually had a pre-cleared car waiting underneath the building because they knew if we have to stop and get you know, some Supreme Court vehicle cleared on the way in, it will draw attention. So they managed to come in. They managed to avoid the press corps, who is notoriously kind of nosy, <laughs> figuring out who's there. They dodged them, and, and, and he manages to get into his meeting uh, with the president. And even even Don McGahn, the White House counsel, and his, and his uh, assistant, Annie, who had been helping coordinate the timing of these things, hadn't been told explicitly what the meeting was for. So they could say to the president, you're the first one to actually know this, when he handed his, his letter of resignation to the president, because they just knew Justice Kennedy would really like to schedule a meeting with the president. Obviously, everyone's kind of eyebrows raised. I think they had an idea. They probably had an idea. (laughs) So as listeners are well aware, what originally unfolded as a relatively standard Supreme Court confirmation quickly devolved into a circus when news of a sexual assault allegation against Brett Kavanaugh became public. And this was after his public confirmation hearing 
and shortly before the Senate Judiciary Committee would vote him out of committee and send him to the full Senate for a vote. So there are a lot of parallels to carry your former boss, Clarence Thomas's confirmation. And I enjoyed how in the book uh, you intersperse scenes from Thomas's confirmation, including his famous declaration that this was a high-tech lynching and he would not provide the rope for his own lynching. In some ways, it was almost as if the left was following a playbook established during Thomas's confirmation. So could you talk a little bit about some of these parallels? Yeah, and it was interesting. I was watching it at the time, but to go back and really relive some of those moments, you see how many parallels there are from the initial hearing and his record being blown out of proportion and misshaped in that. And then, of course, when that didn't succeed, there was an allegation that initially was kept secret. And actually, apparently, she was told she could maybe managed to tank the nomination without coming out publicly, but then eventually was leaked by a Democratic member of the Senate Judiciary Committee, you know, starting to sound uh, potentially familiar here. And then um, there's a second hearing that turns into a media circus, you know, again, as we saw here. And uh, you also have interesting parallels of a lot of women who come forward who knew Justice Thomas at the time, who were his and Anita Hill's colleagues at the time, parallels to the many women who came forward and said, I knew Judge Brett Kavanaugh when he was a young man, and this doesn't sound like it at all. And and some of the same people even were involved in some of these, in some of the rollout. So it was, um, I think for a lot of people who were paying attention to that first hearing, the Kavanaugh confirmation didn't come so much as a shock as much as a, oh no, here we go again. Mm -hmm. And then we learned some even more fun stuff, you know, watching through through the actual hearing in terms of so they were they were they were some of the same bible passages that they were looking to for support and prayer during this process so it was, the the parallels run very deep mm-hmm. after christine ford became a household name other allegations started to surface and increasingly outlandish ones such as michael avenatti's client julie swetnick claiming kavanaugh was involved in orchestrating gang rapes at house parties in the 1980s many of these allegations came to light as the result of truly irresponsible journalism And that's one of the common themes throughout the book, uh, that the media aided in the circus by failing to follow the basic norms of journalism. So, Molly, why do you think this happened? Was it simply driven by a desire to keep Kavanaugh off the court, or is there more to the story than that? Yes and no. I think at heart it really was about the media's opposition to Brett Kavanaugh. You kind of saw it early on from the moment he's nominated They're working very hard to find anything that they can use against him. It actually caused a little bit of a uh, of a fun social media moment when the Washington Post wrote this like breathless expose of Brett Kavanaugh liking baseball and purchasing season tickets for the Nationals. And so people started coming up with their own quote, you know, hashtag Kavanaugh scandals (laughs) that were like, you know, he failed to turn off his brights when he encountered an oncoming car. You know, it was there was he was such a clean living guy. Mm-hmm. He had such a good reputation. He had so many friends that he had cultivated over the course of his life, liberal, conservative, that it was just very hard to figure out what to do to go against him. By the time the Blasey Ford allegations come out, what I think is interesting is not so much just that the media are who they are and they've gotten worse in recent years from being just generally biased to actually sometimes running operations, political operations, which is inappropriate for media outlets to do. They were such an integral part of the rollout of this whole anti-Kavanaugh campaign. It really couldn't have been done without their full complicity. And whether that's how 
the initial, you know, just allowing yourself to be used to, to leak, build up excitement for this story, mm-hmm. the one-sided nature of the original story about the allegation in which problems with the story were overtly hidden. Mm-hmm. For instance, uh, Christine Blasey Ford had told different accounts about the number of people who were at the alleged party, whether they were male or female, how many people were in the room and whatnot. And um, they knew that. They knew that these stories had changed and they kind of papered over those changes and overtly hid the identity of the one female who was supposedly there, even though they knew she existed. That was Leland Kaiser. It's not just the serial underage gang rape cartel story that was bad. Really all of the stories lacked journalistic integrity. You had one reporter actually admit that she ran with a story that was widely criticized for being frankly ludicrous because she was trying to establish a pattern of conduct. This is inappropriate, again, for journalists to behave this way. And they sacrificed their credibility, although they gave themselves awards for their coverage <laughs> of, of this. But I think it really soured for many people what they think they can take from the media. It almost seemed like they were trying to one up each other with uh, some of these articles. Well, it was like a mob. It was a mob mentality. There was a frenzy about it. And people were just forgetting basic, you know, basic standards of journalism. And it was such a one sided thing, too. As we report in our book, we talked to people who had told us stories that were greatly at odds with the public presentation of Blasey Ford and, and uh, what she was like in high school and whatnot. And to have on the one hand this like forensic interrogation of every yearbook joke made mm-hmm. by a friend of Brett Kavanaugh's. And on the other hand, to, to not just say what's happening in the community about what people are saying about the individual who's making the allegation, that is not right. So turning to the Senate Judiciary Committee's handling of the allegations, there's a passage from the book that I love, and I just want to read it. Some Senate Democrats and their staff worried that the Republicans on the Judiciary Committee were releasing all the allegations they were getting to make Ford's allegations look frivolous. And indeed, the allegations were being released strategically by Grassley's aide, Mike Davis. While clerking for Justice Gorsuch, he had heard Justice Thomas tell a story from his youth in Georgia. When a dog killed a chicken, they would tie the dead chicken around the dog's neck and let it rot there. The dog would lose its taste for chicken. Davis wanted Democrats to lose their taste for destroying people's lives with unsubstantiated allegations. He would tie every reckless smear and false allegation around their necks so that they would face at least some of the consequences for what they were doing. That gives me like goosebumps reading that. I love that. (laughs) So do you think the Democrats learned a lesson? I like to think so. I mean, it seems like they were jumping on the bandwagon. I mean, many of these most frivolous allegations at the end were actually coming through the Senate offices of many Senate Democrats. And uh, we had even uh, one, the the rape boat allegation, for example, that was hand delivered by by Senator Whitehouse to the Senator Grassley's office. So they were taking these incredibly seriously. And I think, you know, sometimes what we what you hear are, oh, well, there's more allegations and they're just they're looking into other things. I think what Senator Grassley's office wanted to do was just to rip the mask off there and say, oh, yeah, there are more allegations. Do you really want to know what the content is? And then when people started reading them, they were going, you've got to be kidding me. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and that was interesting because we learned that was really a pattern throughout. Everyone remembers how crazy the first hearings were, I hope. It doesn't, it, it, it's dimmed by how wild things got afterwards, but it was wild and there were 200 people arrested, et cetera. There were senators jumping in on each other. Well, you know, a lot of people were going, why isn't 
Chuck Grassley closing this place down. This is not how we run a hearing. And it, it turns out that was also conscious and uh, that he realized this is something that is showing how extreme the other side is. And if they would like to behave this way, then we're going to let it be on full display and uh, and people will understand that. So I think it was actually a very useful technique in the end to let people see how out of control the left was. And many of those attempts then, as a result, backfired. You've got mm-hmm. moderate senators and people whose votes really weren't in play who were turned off by this um, openly political moves. So where do we go from here? Is there any hope the next confirmation will be any better? We think about this in the book by placing it in context with previous nomination battles when you look at what happened with Bork and Thomas. One of the things that I think we establish is that you see contentious battles most when you're actually seeing a change in Mm -hmm. the court. But if this happened with the replacement of Justice Kennedy by Justice Kavanaugh, Kennedy being a swing vote, admittedly, but a conservative swing vote, what would happen if a member of the liberal bloc retires and is replaced by a Trump nominee? I think it would be naive to expect anything other than a full court press against that individual who would be nominated, their family, and and I think people should be prepared for it. One of the things we try to do in Justice on Trial is lay down the record so that people are better aware. Those of us who do remember the Thomas hearings were better situated for what we encountered in the Kavanaugh spectacle. It wasn't such a surprise. And it's important that people also be held accountable. You know, you're, you're referencing um, criminal referrals for people, uh, Senate procedures and were violated. These things can't just be allowed to continue mm-hmm. lest the next confirmation battle is somehow even more apocalyptic than this one. So the destructive nature of Kavanaugh's confirmation didn't just affect him and his family. There was a lot of collateral damage uh, to people like Senator Collins, Leland Kaiser, who you mentioned uh, was a high school friend of Christine Ford's, uh, who Ford claimed was present the night of the alleged assault. Lisa Blatt, a liberal attorney who supported Kavanaugh and introduced him at the first hearing. Uh, Joel Kaplan, a Facebook executive and friend of the Kavanaugh's who sat with Justice Kavanaugh's wife, Ashley, during the second hearing. Talk about some of these people on the the periphery of the confirmation and what they endured. Yeah, that was one thing that was really interesting is to get to know some of these stories of people who had to make a choice between standing up for someone that they knew was an honorable man and that they had an experience with and then knowing that they were going to get incredible amounts of pushback. There were there were people trying to get Joel Kaplan, for example, fired from Facebook for simply showing up at this hearing. He didn't make an announcement. I'm, I certainly wasn't saying he was endorsing, giving Facebook's endorsement of Brett Kavanaugh. We know that it's a company that is not only run by liberal executives, but almost entirely staffed by some very liberal employees. He was not representing them. And it was also interesting to see the scrutiny given to, for example, people sit, happen to be sitting on Brett Kavanaugh's side of the aisle there. And there was almost none whatsoever given to the people who were there in support of Christine Blasey Ford. There was no note made of the fact that her family didn't attend, for Mm -hmm. example. The people who did attend, Monica McLean, whose name became very widely talked about later because she was the person who, it emerged, was alleged to have been trained in how to take a polygraph by Christine Blasey Ford, who she later denied that she had given her tips on, on passing a polygraph for her FBI examination. She was there walking into the room with Christine Blasey Ford as one of her core uh, support team. So it was a real disjuncture 
between the people on each side. And then people like Lisa Blatt, who I thought was just an amazing figure in there. She's the most popular woman arguing before the court. And she has a ridiculous win record. I mean, she's lost maybe two cases out of her 30 some cases she has argued. Mm -hmm. It's shocking. In fact, she's very liberal herself, but she also believes that Brett Kavanaugh is going to be a good and faithful judge. And she had to make a lot of friends who she, you know, they were basically making her choose between deciding whether she was going to support him and their friendship. And she, she kind of turned it back on them. And it was like, you know what, this is what I believe. And this is who I am. And you can decide whether you want to still uh, remain friends with me or not. And some did. And unfortunately, many didn't. But I think it was also hers was a real strong case of courage because she also isn't someone who's going, oh, I'm I'm a, such a victim for people not wanting to be with me. It's more of a, you know what, if you if you can't figure out how to be friends with someone who differs even on a small issue, you know, even if I agree with you on most policy issues and this is one area we differ, then, you know, I don't, I don't need to. It's an easy, quick way to figure out who your real friends are. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was a very refreshing um, in this world where there's so much of this unfriending and you no know, social pressure that everyone has to agree on everything at all times rather than reaching out and you know, getting to know people well who have a variety of opinions. Mm-hmm. So Kavanaugh was confirmed, and it seems the country has mostly moved on. Uh, so where are some of these people now? The Senate referred Michael Avenatti and his client, Julie Swetnick, to the Justice Department, as you mentioned, for possible criminal charges. Uh, did anything come of that? And what about Christine Ford and some of the other people who made allegations? That is, that is the important thing we want people to think about now. Uh, we're we're a year after the nomination. We lived through something that was very difficult and um, and people understandably want to move on, but it's important that people be held accountable. Yes, Chairman Grassley did refer some of the people who made false allegations to the Department of Justice for criminal prosecution. At this point, nothing has been publicly announced about that. And it is a little, uh, you know, it's unclear if anything has been done at all. Uh, After the Thomas hearings, there were Senate investigations into how things broke down on the Senate Judiciary Committee. There was a change of leadership in the Senate Judiciary Committee Mm -hmm. after these hearings from Charles Grassley to Lindsey Graham. Lindsey Graham has not instituted a review of what happened uh, that caused why it happened that Dianne Feinstein circumvented the rules that were put in place after the Thomas hearings to make sure that people who make allegations can have their identity protected. She went out of her way to avoid those procedures. Uh, We do not know precisely who leaked the letter that was um, from Blasey Ford to the media. We know it obviously was part of a big public relations rollout. Uh, The statement in the letter was that Christine Blasey Ford desired not to have her name out there. The actions taken by the very few people who had the letter were designed to make sure that her name would be public. And that needs review because people do talk to the Senate and they do need to they do need to be able to say things about nominees and have their identity protected um, and not have things devolve into a circus. It's a way to protect both accuser and accused. Um, But no review of that has taken place. The media who engaged in so many bad who had so much bad behavior have not been held accountable. Instead, we've seen people be promoted or receive awards. Uh, Part of that is incumbent upon those of us who were outraged by what we saw in the Kavanaugh confirmation proceedings. This is not about whether you support 
Judge Kavanaugh becoming Justice Kavanaugh or or not, you know, in terms of his jurisprudence, but just the basic norms that we have to manage the confirmation process. And so I think public pressure is required and people should also think about it when they vote. Do they want to reward people who engaged in some of these uh, these ways of acting or not. To some extent, that happened a little bit in 2018. It was a very bad year for Republicans, uh, but they actually picked up three seats in the Senate. And part of that was the result of how the how the Democratic Party in general had engaged in the anti-Kavanaugh efforts, even if the people who were uh, punished for it might not have been the worst actors in that in that regard. But elections do have consequences, particularly as it relates to who is confirming uh, judges and who is naming them. So that is one way to hold people accountable. So Justice Kavanaugh recently concluded his first term on the court and liberals fears of a radically changed America haven't been realized. Uh, So Carrie, what's your assessment of, of how our newest justice is doing? Yeah, I mean, we've seen these apocalyptic kind of predictions before with Robert Bork's America. And one of the funny things we uncovered is that they actually, before there was a Robert Bork's America, this lecture by Ted Kennedy about how how everything was going to, you know, go to hell in a handbasket after Bork took over, um, he actually tried that speech out on Rehnquist. And it was like, well, you know, it was more or less William Rehnquist's America. And I thought it was so telling because we literally were living in William Rehnquist's America for the next 30 years, practically. And none of that happened. And so I think anytime you hear those apocalyptic predictions, you have to take them with a great big heap and helping of salt. And especially when you have someone who has spent more than a decade on the D.C. circuit, it is very clear how, how Brett Kavanaugh's jurisprudence is. And yes, he is coming at it from a conservative perspective, from an originalist perspective, but he is not someone who is, you know, a, a bomb thrower. He's someone who's very reasoned. In fact, he's someone who the Supreme Court had adopted his opinions regularly mm-hmm. um, in as, as a appellate judge. So he's someone who's very reasonable and actually very good at convincing his colleagues, including his liberal or, or more moderate colleagues, of, of the, the correctness of his approach. So I, I think the first term has really borne that out. He has been part of a, a kind of growing real for justice conservative block that's often just joined by the chief justice as well. So that's no surprise. We knew that was going to be his approach going in because he's an originalist and a constitutionalist. Um, and we've seen some, some really, um, important cases on those issues that were also characteristics of his lower court jurisprudence. So religious freedom, and, and particularly kind of separation of powers mm-hmm. and pushback on overgrowth of the administrative state when, when it gets outside of the constitutional limits on, on power. So I think those are themes that we're likely to see continued in her, his jurisprudence and also are things that the court has for years been talking about and moving in a, in a clearer direction toward. So one final question. What advice would you offer a future Supreme Court nominee? One of the things we learned about the process by which President Trump was selecting people for his list of nominees was that the team had built in certain things that I think are helpful for future for future nominees. They're going back through the process and they're looking at failures of previous Republican administrations and how to avoid them. And of course, they care deeply about the actual uh, jurisprudence of the of the nominee of the potential nominee. They want originalists. They want people who have a track record, an established track record. It's one thing to think these things or write about them academically. Entirely another thing to actually sign your name to an Mm -hmm. opinion. Um, They're also looking for people who showed courage with these opinions that they um, that even if it was a politically difficult situation, they showed they showed they were able to withstand the pressure. 
That, I think, is the number one thing that will be important going forward is that courage. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a thing that needs to be cultivated, and we do have in this country people who have cultivated it. It's also true that this is going to come at a huge cost to family, and so I think preparing family for it is, um, is important about what might be said or done to a family and making sure that, that you are in a position to be able to continue. We spoke with a justice who reminded us that there are people who have given limbs or lives for their country, and that by comparison, a brutal confirmation process um, is, not, is not that bad. I'm not sure if I agree with that statement, but it is something to keep in mind, that perspective. Carrie, any final thoughts on your advice? Uh, yeah, I just uh, hope that we are able to, in the process of this, ensure that it doesn't happen again to someone else. I don't think that should be the cause. Co- you know, while people may be willing to stand up and, and give their lives for the country, I don't think that ha- sacrificing your reputation should be the cost of mm-hmm. public service. Um, and I also hope that our effort is going to be able to remind people of what happened so there isn't there, there's an active um, campaign, I think, already to discredit Justice Kavanaugh, the people who were unable to delay or defeat his nomination are moving on to a third phase. We saw this happen with Justice Thomas. Many people who feel threatened by his jurisprudence would rather just resort to ad hominem attacks and and kind of rehash some of the same arguments that were made and were defeated back in 1991. Um, And so we hope that by telling this story and telling it faithfully and fully that uh, we will help uh, to prevent some of that revisionist history from taking root here so people can judge uh, Justice Kavanaugh on his record. Well, ladies, thank you so much for joining me. And listeners, you don't want to miss this book, so run out and get it today, Justice on Trial, The Kavanaugh Confirmation, and the Future of the Supreme Court. Thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please leave us a five-star rating. Please follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS101. And you can email us at scotus101 at heritage.org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, executive produced by Elizabeth Slattery. Sound design by Lauren Evans and Thalia Rampersad. For more information, visit heritage.org.